We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Tracy McCubbin, who is the author of the book Making Space Clutter-Free, the last book on decluttering you'll ever need, and the founder and chief of Declutter, which provides a variety of services to declutter your home, your office, and your life. I've invited Tracy onto my podcast because I wonder if you're overwhelmed with the stuff in your house and can't see what you need for the clutter, I suspect that could be mirrored psychologically too. After all, how can you lead a meaningful life if you can't see what is truly important and what is simply the noise of everyday life? So welcome, Tracy. What about your childhood prepared you for going into other people's houses and throwing things out? (laughs) Oh, thank you, Andrew, so much for having me. I love this and I love the conversation about a meaningful life because as an overview that's what I learned about my business, that it's never about the stuff. It's never about having a perfect home. It's about helping people be their best and have their home support them. So if we're going to dive right into it, I grew up the child of a hoarder. My dad is a diagnosed category 10 hoarder. It got worse as he got older. So when I was little, a little kid, it was sort of he was eccentric or a pack rat. And then as emotional traumas happened to him over his life, divorces, breakups, loss of jobs, it got worse and worse and worse. So I witnessed, to use your word, my whole life, the impact that stuff has on a person and the impact that a person's relationship with their stuff got in the way of their relationship with other people. And it sounds like you've got a relationship with a dog as well. What's your yes, dog called? Yes, I do. <laughs> the dog is called Bodie. We have moved into a new house and we are learning the ins and outs of it. So <laughs> let me see if I can get that under control. <laughs> it doesn't matter. My dog occasionally makes appearances on this podcast as well. Yeah, yeah. He's figuring out the neighborhood. So... <laughs> So tell me about, I I don't understand what a category 10 hoarder is. So just as a child, give me a picture of what it was like and how that impacted on you as a child. So hoarding is a anxiety disorder. For the longest time, they thought it was a symptom of obsessive compulsive disorder. It used to be called Collier's disease, but in the probably last 10 years, the psychiatric community has made it its own disorder and they rate it on a scale of one to 10. So there are certain things like, are there rooms in your house you can't go into? Can you sleep on your bed? Do you have more than four animals, you know, in a small enclosed space? So he is at the top of the scale. You know, he has probably four rooms in his house he can't go into. You know, there are goat trails through his whole house. So that wasn't occurring when I was a child. It was more, he was starting to accumulate. There was, 
you know, everything was always messy. He sort of set his life up so that it could never take hold. He was subletting places, living on a boat, you know, but he always had storage units and we were always moving stuff from one place to another. The focus of our time together after he and my mother split up was very much about his stuff, managing it. Oh, we have to get take this out to the farm. We have to get this to this garage. I'm renting this place from this person. You know, it was always the activity. And we just sort of thought he was weird. And then he made a big move from Washington, D.C. back to California. And I was helping him arrange the movers. And I got a call from them to say like, look, you know, we do this all the time, but we need to tell you because no one had been to see his apartment back there that he's a hoarder. And that was when my brother and I realized the depth of it. And how old were you when your parents divorced? I was seven. Gosh, so this is quite from a formative age, really. Yes. You know, my the divorce was terrible, as most are, and, you know, very chaotic and lots of things going on. So I always, at a very young age, was trying to make order out of chaos. Well, if my shoes all point the same way, and if my books are lined up perfectly, you know. So subconsciously, I very early realized that environment and our stuff impacts how we feel. So then when I literally stumbled onto my business, I was working as a personal assistant and I would kind of do odd jobs for friends of the people that I was assisting for. And, oh, can you help my, you know, my grandma needs help sorting her paperwork. Or, you know, I started doing these little odd organizing jobs, not even charging for them. And then people started calling and more and more and more. And then I started the business and it took off. I've been in business for 14 years. I have nine employees. We're booked always two months in advance. But then when I was started to work with clients, I realized, oh, our environment and our environment full of stuff really affects our health and well-being. And we're really talking about decluttering rather than people who are obsessive hoarders. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say to the people who are listening, if you worry that you have hoarding disorder or someone you love, there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of help for it. Cognitive behavior therapy helps. But for me, I'm talking about sort of garden variety clutter, how clutter affects the majority of us in our everyday life. I call it the stuff at the bottom of the stairs. You know, you have this (laughs) pile of stuff. And it's sort of, I mean, I I wouldn't win many prizes from you. You'd be pretty horrified. I mean, I have a lot of stuff beside the bed. I have the books that I'm reading, which is several books at the same time. And I've got my glasses. And then there's just stuff there as well, you know, that I'm allowed a few spaces where I accumulate material. But generally, I try and keep it under control. But I think everybody has places where stuff goes and it can sort of sit there for a few days and then you get told off by your partner and you have to (laughs) sort it out. Well, you'll, the great irony of the, as life tends to be, is I met my true partner and great love later in life in middle age. And he's lovely and everything I've ever waited for. And he's so messy. (laughs) He's so messy. (laughs) So I'm learning a relationship on a whole other level. (laughs) I think the universe sends you what you need, to be perfectly honest. So probably he needs somebody who's going to take control and you need somebody who's going to get you just relax a bit. For me, it's also navigating how we are about stuff is teaching us both how to be in a better partnership. 
you know, what is the stuff that we compromise on? What is the stuff that we have a conversation about? How do we have those conversations? Because for him being messy is a trigger, right? He's heard it his whole life. So how do I talk to him about that? How do we talk about shared spaces? How do we talk about living in a community? Like it's a real opportunity for communication, which I think is amazing. I never saw it that way. So we're using it as opposed to you're wrong, I'm right, is how do we talk through this? How do we communicate through this? So let's look at that very topic. You find a level, and because this is something a lot of my clients are dealing with, you know, one person is always tidier than the other. It's the nature of relationships. How do you find a compromise through that, do you think? I think it's a couple ways. I think one, there's the idea of the shared spaces. So how do we make the shared spaces work for everybody? So you start there. I think honestly, if it's possible, you know, space-wise, I think everybody in the partnership needs their own space that they can do what they want. So he has an office on the other side of the house. I don't go in there. It doesn't affect me. He does brilliant work back there. I have my office. So it's really about focusing on the community spaces. And it's also really understanding that the reason that we declutter, the reason that we try and stay organized, the reason that we put things away is to make our life go smoother. You know, last night he was looking for salad tongs and they go in this drawer in this container. And I'm like, they're always here. So you always know where to look for them. This isn't about you being wrong or messy. It's about, you know, where to find what you're looking for. So the rest of your life is easier. So really reframing the conversation so that it's not you're wrong and I'm right. It's that I just watched you spend 10 minutes looking for your keys. And that was incredibly frustrating to you. If you put your keys in this bowl where keys always go, then you always know where to find them. Let's take that frustration out of your life. So it's really about defining the shared community spaces, giving everybody their own. And then, you know, understanding like, this is a perfect example. He makes me a cup of coffee every morning. He brings it to me in bed. It is the sweetest loving gesture. But then the coffee stuff is always on the kitchen counter. So I clean it up. Because the gesture of him making me coffee means so much to me that I can rinse out, you know, I can wipe the coffee grounds off and rinse out the French press and put it in the dish drainer. It's three minutes out of my life. So in that compromise, instead of like, you need to do this, it's like, oh, this is this amazing gesture that starts my day full of love. So I rinse out the French press. I've got something that I talk about with my clients that might be useful for you as well, that I talk about seesaws. And you know what it is with a seesaw. If you push down one end, the other person goes up on the other end. So one would be money where one is a saver and one is a spender, but obviously tidiness as well. So the more tidy you become, often the more your partner will become messy. And obviously the more messy he becomes and pushes down on the other side, the more tidy you're going to want to become. And you know, you can go up and down on the seesaw, which is not very nice being flung up in the air and going down again. Or <laughs> I get <laughs> or you can move more to the middle a little bit. Each of you move more to the middle a bit. And then there are differences, but actually you're not being shot so far up and down. 
if you learn that the more you push down on your particular area, the more he's going to go up on his area, I think it actually helps you begin to think, yeah, let's try and find the compromise. And I, I love your framing. We want to make life go smoother. How are we going to do it rather than, you know, I'm clean and I'm wonderful and you're messy and you're wrong or the other way around. So I love that. Yeah. And I heard somebody say this once and I thought this was great. And I've been really saying it to myself is, you know, in a relationship, do you want to be right or do you want to be close? You know, and so oh, I happy had, even. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I've been finding things where it's like, it doesn't matter to him how the towels are folded in the linen closet. It doesn't matter to him. It matters to me. He's never going to fold them the way I want them folded. When I fold them, they're folded the way I want to. So I get to fold them the way I want to. And it's just no longer a conversation. So I think for people who are in a partnership and who are on different ends of the spectrum, you know, really understanding why you're digging in, you know, why you're making this such an important issue. Is it about something else? Is it about your past? You know, really understanding that at the end of the day, the goal is to create the most loving, supportive home. So how do you do that as a partner? And that's a really good tip. I mean, I'm just reframing it into my kind of language. But, you know, if you go deeper into the problem rather than just fight about the actual item, you can often find more compassion for each other's position. Because, you know, when we listen to what it must have been like for you as a child dealing with your father, we can understand why you want the towels folded a certain way. Did you ever get to the point where it was sort of almost a obsessive compulsive thing for you that you had to sort of pull back on the neatness? Oh, Andrew, I took my obsessive compulsive and turned it into a business. <laughs> like that's like yes, like I was like I have to channel this somewhere. So I I have a, an amazing client who's a Jungian psychiatrist and he's just the loveliest. And we, of course, when we work together, we just talk, 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 talk. And he was the one that pointed out to me, I was telling him about my father and he said, Oh, that's so interesting. You took your psychic wound and you turned it into your life's work. And I was like, what? <laughs> I never realized. <laughs> but it's what everybody does. I mean, you know, I come from a family where feelings were not allowed and, you know, we weren't allowed to talk about stuff. And, you know, now basically I talk about everything personal to everybody in the world. So, you know, I've done exactly the same. I think we all do that, to be honest. I, I was reading something the other day, which I thought was so interesting. This person was talking about trauma and they were saying that, you know, so often we think of trauma as this horrible thing that happened to us. And it was, but that maybe you take a moment to see the strengths that came out of you by going through that trauma. Like, oh, I lived with my dad. I saw all this stuff happen and I turned it into a very successful business working with clients that I love. I wrote a book about it. Like, that's the sort of other side of it. So it's very interesting. And, and I see that with clients all the time. Because for me, working with people in their homes, it's never about, oh, you have to be right. You have to do it this way. It has to be color-coded. And you know it's about, no, 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 I want your home to work for you. I want it to work smoothly so you can enjoy your day or start your day off right. So sometimes we have to unwind a little bit and look back at, you know, why do you beat yourself up so much about this? Or why do you feel so bad about this? Where did that come from? And then realize that you can release it. So what are the sort of common reasons that people have too much stuff that would allow somebody listening to this to look around their house and see 
why they might be in a situation where all their cupboards are full, so to speak? So in working with clients and speaking about it for a long time, I realized that as humans, we've basically collectively created these stories about why we can't let go of our stuff, why we keep it. And I call these stories the emotional clutter blocks. So they're the emotional narratives that we tell ourselves about why we can't let go of our stuff. So that's what I write about in my book, Making Space Clutter-Free. But they range from everything from my stuff keeps me stuck in the past. So I'm holding on to my memories. You know, I want to go back to my glory days to I'm not worth my good stuff. So I don't use my special things. I save the nice candles and I close with tags on it or my stuff tells me who I am. So you're a shopper, you know, you're a, and a shopper can be anybody who buys, you know, luxury items to people who get things on sale. You know, those people that are like, Oh my gosh, I got this on sale. I went by where, and it was, I got a great deal. They define themselves by their ability to, you know, be frugal. There's the stuff I keep paying for. So these are things that you bought that were expensive or expensive to you and you really don't ever use them. But you're like, I can't let go of that. I paid good money for that. I joke with people all the time about treadmills. You know, I'll go into someone's house and they'll have a treadmill in the be- middle of their bedroom. And I'll, <laughs> and, I'll say, <laughs> and I'll say, oh, do you use your treadmill? And they go, every day to hang my clothes on. <laughs> And another one is I'm stuck with other people's stuff. So that's about people Mm. in our lives who have passed. That's about grief. That's about unresolved grief. Avoiding my stuff. That's my clutter block. Paperwork. I can't opening mail, reading emails. I can't. It's too much. So, you know, we all have at least one of these clutter blocks. Some of us have more. As our life changes, we get different ones. You know, when we hit an age, I'm at the age of aging parents. My friend's parents are starting to pass away. You know, we're all sort of being confronted with, oh, golly, my parents have a house full of stuff and I don't want any of it. What do I do with it? And I feel so guilty throwing it away. So what do you do under those circumstances? Yeah. So Because I, I have to say I'm about to face this one too. So uh, help me, Tracy. <laughs> so here's what I say, and this is always a little bit difficult, but I encourage the family and friends to start to have the conversation with the people who are aging. Tell me the stories about these things. Tell me why they're important. Are they really worth money? Because everybody watches Antique Roadshow and thinks everything's worth money. Just because it's old, it's not valuable, right? The minute it leaves the shop, it's got no value at all. You have to pay someone to haul it away. You have to pay someone to haul it away. We have a great, we have a great thing here in Berlin where you just leave it on the street and somebody will come and take it. Opposite where I live, somebody put a sofa out on the street. And, you know, for the next couple of hours, people sat on it to repair their bicycles and various other things like that. <laughs> and then what looked like three students came along and carried it away and took it to their apartment. And that was really beautiful. Oh, it was great. One of my favorite stories, I had a client, he put a refrigerator out on the stoop with a sign on it that said free, and it sat there for two days. And then he took the sign off and he put a sign on that said $10 and it was gone in like an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have this amazing thing. I don't know if you have it there, but we have these, they're called buy nothing groups. 
and they tend to be in the Facebook community, but there's different ways to find them. And people just post stuff that they want to let go of and they trade it and give it. And it's an amazing way to make community and it's just fantastic. But to go back to what you said about people passing and their stuff, I think that you start the conversation while they're still able to have it, hear the stories, decide, let, and also like, my mom's starting to give stuff away now. Every time you go there, she's like, take it, take it, you know? And, and even if you don't want it, donate it behind her back. You know, I think that you also understanding, and this is really important, Andrew, that when people keep the stuff of people who have passed away, what we're sort of trained to think is that I'm honoring their memory. You know, how can I possibly give this away? This was theirs. But what's really happening is that keeping the stuff is a way to maintain the connection. We don't want to lose the connection with the people who have passed away. So it's not about the stuff. It's we don't want to lose that connection. So is there another way that you can keep that connection? Can you you know, have your favorite photo of you with them out. So you see it every day. Can you, you know, once a year go to their favorite restaurant and think about them. You know, there's so many other ways to keep the connection without having to fill your garage with their old furniture. And I think when people understand that it makes it easier to let go. I mean, my partner died when I was in my late thirties and he'd come over from, bizarrely enough, from Germany, where I now live, with something like 87 boxes of stuff, most of which sat in the garage for quite a long time. And on one level, the lesson was an important lesson, which is, you know, we spend all our time collecting stuff that nobody actually wants. So it's been very good at me because I don't actually buy very much stuff at all. So I've, I've learned that lesson, but I can't... I can't let go of things. That's my that's my problem. You know, I could take you around my office and show you things. In fact, a lot of them are really useful things that I'm still using, but I find it incredibly difficult to let things go. But let me say something, and this is a really important distinction, Andrew, that if there are things that came from him and you still use, you know, whatever, I mean, you know, a stapler that was his and you still use it, like you don't have to get rid of it. What I'm talking about when it becomes clutter is when it's stuff that you have to move out of the way to do something else. Or I tell people, you know, do you feel like your stuff is owning you? You're not owning your stuff, you know, that you are managing your stuff. So I'm not saying get rid of everything. I'm not saying have five pieces of clothes. If you use it or if you love it and it supports your life, by all means, keep it. You know, I think there's this sort of idea now that decluttering is like, get rid of everything and you shouldn't have anything. And I don't think that. I want people to be flooded with memories. I just don't want it to keep them stuck. So how do you actually help people decide what's important and what's not? So when I go in and work in people's homes one-on-one, it's a combination of I provide the help of the physical labor. So we sort, we pull everything out, we look at it. And then I just listen and I ask questions, you know, and I ask some of the difficult questions. Like, this is a perfect example. I deal a lot with people who have clothes in a couple different sizes, right? These are my skinny clothes. These are my fat clothes, right? I'm going to, you know, that whole conversation. I always say like, okay, 
let's look at all your skinny clothes. And they're like, well, I'm not skinny right now. I'm fat right now. It's like, okay, let's stop that conversation, right? Let's not use that judgment. And then does it truly motivate you to keep those pants that you're not fitting into? Does that make you feel good? Or do you open your closet and you feel terrible? I split up from a longtime partner and I lost a ton of weight. And I went out and bought a very expensive pair of pants. I wore them once. And then I like started eating again and, you know, sleeping and dating and I could never get back into them. They were like the kind of pants you would have had to marry me and divorce me all over again to get back in those pants. But I hung on to them, right? I hung on to them and they made me feel bad. I felt bad because I spent money on them. Emotional block number seven, the stuff I keep paying for. They made me feel bad because I was never going to be that skinny again. You know, clutter block number one, my stuff keeps me stuck in the past. Like there was just all this stuff. And finally one day I was like, these have got to go. Like these have got to go. Like, why am I doing this? So it's really about looking at your stuff in a way. Does it support you? Does it make you happy? Do you use it? Then keep it. But if it doesn't, then it becomes clutter. And you have a really nice idea, which is use the nice stuff every day. Tell me about that. So a big part of my business is we help clean out homes after someone has passed. Most of the time it's adult children, you know, they there's three siblings and everybody's working full time and it's a very time consuming job. So they're like, you guys handle it. You know, we help the family figure out what they want and get things donated into auction. So it's a big part of my business. And I come across wedding gifts that were never opened. China that was hasn't been used in 10 years. Like beautiful things that it's like, oh, well, that's for a special occasion. You know, it's a special occasion today. You got out of bed. It's special, you know, like eat pizza off of the nice China. This, we don't live that, you know, post industrial revolution, you know, the advent of the middle class. I mean, there's so much socioeconomic thinking behind it and classism and like this is fancy like make every day fancy and use the nice stuff because you just don't know i mean you know you lost a partner at a young age like celebrate every day wear the nice blouse burn the expensive candle open that bottle of wine like who knows if tomorrow's gonna come who knows one of my favorite things i have a private facebook group and the people in it will post pictures. We talk about this a lot using your nice things. And they'll post pictures of them like having their afternoon tea or their morning coffee with a little cookie in their beautiful china, you know, instead of the old Starbucks coffee bug. And they're like, I just took a moment to sit outside in the sunshine and have a cup of tea and a cookie, like in a beautiful, you know, porcelain teacup. Like, do it. Life is, appreciate the beauty, appreciate the beauty. And I have my grandmother's old hand-painted tea service, but when I moved from England to Germany, I'm afraid to say that went into the loft in my house in the UK. So I'm afraid to say I have a whole loft full of stuff. Back in the UK? Back in the UK. And, you know, I haven't seen it for almost four years but it's sort of important that it's still there and that one day I might be able to get it. And here's the thing, you know, if it's not, you know, I I was working, one of the gentlemen in my Facebook group, he had 
and his ex-partner, he lives with his current partner, his ex-partner has a shed on his property. And for 12 years, my Facebook grouper had been storing stuff in that shed at his ex-partner's house. And he didn't go over there because he, you know, didn't, you know, all, all the stuff that goes with that. And one of the things that he came to realize is like that is weighing on my head. I'm asking my ex-partner to manage my stuff. Like he just realized like, this doesn't feel good anymore. Like I'm asking this person and I was like, are you doing it to stay connected? Like, you know, and he was like, yeah, I think I just want to see him every once in a while. I'm like, well, maybe it's a conversation with your current partner and your ex and maybe everybody has dinner or maybe you guys have lunch once a month. Like maybe there's a way to stay connected without using up his, the shed in his garden. So sometimes we have to get to a place you're not ready yet. And if it's not a great financial burden or something to anybody, then you're ready when you're ready. And when you work with people decluttering their houses, when do they make the best decisions? At the beginning of the day or at the oh, end of the day? Oh, that's my favorite conversation. I am a big proponent of, I talk a lot about decision fatigue. Do you know about this? Tell me about it anyway. I think I know what you mean, but tell me. Sure. They So they've done tons of studies about the part of the brain that makes decisions. And what they found is that counterintuitively, you know, we're always told exercise your brain and work your brain out and, you know, do puzzles and crossword puzzles. But the part of your brain that makes decisions gets the more decisions it makes over the day, it gets tired. And when it gets tired, it defaults to making bad decisions. So they did a study with brides, you know, brides or grooms or people who are planning weddings. And then they were like, I don't know why I chose those napkins. I don't even remember seeing those napkins because they had to make so many decisions. So when, when you're decluttering, this is an important thing about clutter, every piece of clutter in your house is a decision. Do I want this? Do I not want this? Am I going to keep it? Where am I going to keep it? So you tire your brain out and you default to making bad decisions, which is usually keeping things you don't need. So I really try and figure out when people are the best. Are you a morning person? Are you an afternoon person? What's your tolerance? I mean, I'm a like ox. I'm like a workhorse. I could go for 12 hours. Like you can't tire me out. So I have to know with my clients, you know, my older clients, two hours, maybe three. And I start to see it. I really pay attention. I'm like, okay, you're, you're getting in that place. Let's go walk around the block. Let's split a coffee. Let's take a break. Let me come back tomorrow. So if you're trying to declutter at home and you haven't been successful with it and you're wondering why, pay attention to this. Realize that everything you look at, you're making a decision about. So understand that there are real physiological, psychological, I don't know, brain things happening that is making it difficult for yourself. So go easy on yourself. Don't, if you, this doesn't come naturally, don't beat yourself up. Not everybody's hardwired this way. I, I come in contact. People are so hard on themselves. Mm. I don't know why I can't do this. I'm like, I can't play the violin. You don't see me beating myself up about it. Like, you know, we're so hard on ourselves, Andrew. We just really beat ourselves up. Yeah. I mean, I could quite easily come on this program and beat myself up, but I'm going to resist the temptation. And I think it's important, isn't it? Yes. You know, especially like post pandemic, you know, people gave up. Like, I'm going into people's houses, people gave up. And they're like, oh, I just, I had all these organizing projects I was going to do. And I was like, really? 
really? You're going to beat yourself about that? You were trying not to like die and you were feeding your family and working from home. Like back off. We're just so... That's the thing I just wish like people are so hard on themselves. And, you know, I come from the place of I want your home to support you. I want you to feel happy when you walk in and I want you to be a place of rest and rejuvenation. You know, it's not about looking like perfect on Instagram. You know, I I work with a lot of people who are collectors and Mm -hmm. collect different things. And, you know, they're like, oh, this, you probably hate this. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what I think. You love roosters. Do you love all these roosters? Because usually for collectors, there's some of the roosters you don't love, you know, and don't go by what I want. If it feels like too much to you, it's too much. Like we're pretty simple. If it feels like you have too much stuff, you have too much stuff. And you've just moved house. Moving house is obviously a a very good chance to declutter. (laughs) Yes, I have. I moved out of a house that I've been in for 21 years. What did you find? find? (laughs) I found found the parade of exes. I was like, oh, this guy, this one. Oh, that guy. I remember that guy. (laughs) 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 As my best friend says, he'll say sometimes he'll find something. He'll go, I saw a ghost. (laughs) You know, it was really like I I moved in with my now fiance. We're starting our life together. Thank you. And thank you. I'm I'm really excited. So it was really like looking at things like, is this going to support our life together? Is this the past? Is it the past I want to remember? And also really remembering somebody said to me, you know, even if you're making a move that you're excited about, like I'm excited to be with him and I'm excited to make a home with him, but every change, there's still loss, right? I still lost. I still look back 21 years. My grandmother helped me buy that house. I started my business in that house. You know, I became an entrepreneur and a woman and I wrote a book in that house. I have to understand that even though I'm excited about this, I needed to give myself some space to process it. And I think that that, you know, and really looking at the stuff of what I wanted to bring with me. And what about decluttering at work? Oh, I mean, this gets into productivity. This gets into the idea like they, you know, the scientists who are the royal they have done so many studies about clutter and how it affects the brain that what happened literally like we've all had this experience where you sort of have a pile and you kind of don't see it anymore well that's actually what happens your brain can't take a lot of stuff coming at you so it just stops seeing things so when you're at work and things are piled up i don't care i'll die on this hill if you have a hundred thousand unread emails in your inbox and you open your inbox that has an effect on you. You feel overwhelmed. You feel like out of control. You feel like you're not, you know, on top of things. I don't care. Or people whose desks are piled, they're like, I know where everything is. And I'm like, pointing to the piles on your desk and saying it's in there somewhere is not knowing where it is. (laughs) You know my filing system. (laughs) And it's about, I want you to put, you know, not to like, humble brag, but I had to find a piece of paper from 2005 when I sold my house that the whole deal was hinging on. I needed to show this loan had been paid off. I went exactly to it because I was like, this is where I keep the stuff that has to do with that refinance. So I didn't spend an hour looking for it. I spent two seconds 
So I had an outward to declutter other stuff, you know? (laughs) So it's really about creating systems that will work for you, that you'll abide by, and that make things go smoother. So give us some advice on a system to make our paperwork work for us so we can find those things. I am still, if you are a paper person and you we're out there, well, there are still people who are paper people who like their bills paper. I am a fan and I always will be of a filing cabinet. And I like a simple filing system. I like it either broad categories, auto, house, insurance, you know, alphabetical, A, B, C, D, what, however your, I always tell people, if you needed to find this piece of paper, let's say it's your auto insurance policy. If you needed to find it, how do you think about it? Do you think about it auto or do you think about it insurance? And somebody will say, oh, I think about it insurance. And I'm like, great, let's make you a file that says insurance and all your insurance goes in there. It doesn't have to be fine grain inside of it and reverse chronological. You just need to know where to put your hands on it. You know, even if you don't want a filing cabinet, you can buy those plastic file boxes at the office supply store that hold files and put them in there, you know, just sort through it. The other big thing about paper clutter, the number one cause is over retention. We're keeping more things than we need to. And part of that comes out of, interestingly enough, Andrew, if you're someone who has lots of paper and you constantly can't find things... This weird thing happens where you keep too much because you can't find what you're looking for. So it's really like, do I really need this? Do I really need this? And asking yourself that. What's the best lesson that you've learned from one of your clients? What's the best lesson that I've learned from one of my clients? Golly, I just have so many. You know what? that we age, that life goes on, the march of time, that we can't stay stuck in the past. We can't stay backwards. We have to move forwards. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the advantages of being a member of the supporters circle is that you can send a letter in to us for me to discuss with my guests. Today, in fact, actually, I've got an extract from a book that I would like to talk about. Sadly, the Grammy-nominated musician Liz Fair didn't send me this, but I stole it out of her book, (laughs) Horror Stories, a Memoir. And I think you might find this interesting, but I'd be very interested in your comments. I clean my closet in an attempt to build a better life for myself. I run my hands across the row of fabrics, removing any item that feels scratchy or stiff. I imagine the guy I'm dating wrapping his arms around me, and anything that doesn't feel good to touch has to go. I think about what I'd take with me if he asked me to move in with him. I think about what kinds of clothes he'd like to see me in if he comes home and saw me walking around the house. Garments that fail to pass this test are tossed unceremoniously into a lavender-scented trash bag, then stuffed into the trunk of my car and driven to the Goodwill in the morning. It's like murder, killing the outfits that once served me well, but they have too many memories clinging to them and I'm ready to start over.
by the time I've finished purging, half my previous wardrobe is gone. What I keep looks great on the hangers. The racks, spacious and sleek like an art installation. Decluttering feels like rebirth, as if I'm inviting in the future, rather than dwelling on the past. I'm scared of winding up as an eccentric old lady living alone in a big dusty house. I've deliberately sought out a life in which I would never be feel lonely or isolated. I work in a hectic, crowded environment, yet when I go home and there's no one there, the empty rooms feel even lonelier in contrast. Sometimes I can see that old lady in the mirror, looking back at me, waiting for her chance to burst out. So what were your thoughts when you read that, Tracy? Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I'm a huge Liz Fair fan. And it's exactly like, that's her working through clutter block number one. My stuff keeps me stuck in the past. That she's looking at her clothes to a future self, which to me is the positive, right? This is, I, I feel good in this. It's not itchy. It's not scratchy. I envision a life with a man, you know, that it's so positive and moving forward. But it's also interesting because there's that fear back here, right? I'm going to grow up to be an old eccentric lady, which by the way, let me add, I hope to be that. Like, that's my goal. I want to be an old eccentric lady in moo-moos. Just saying, for the record. You know, so she's... It's kind of fear-motivated a little bit, but a real observation of creating the best life for herself. And it's so interesting about that she talked about clothes in that way that... You know, when I work on somebody's closet with them and they're like, oh, you know, that's a pretty fabric, but it's so itchy and oh, it's this and it's uncomfortable. It's too tight. I'm like, oh my golly, why are we going out in the world in clothes that are itchy and too tight or hanging on to them? It's not going to get less itchy. So I loved how she looked at like her clothes want to make her feel beautiful. But getting rid of them is like murder. Yeah, because they're memories, right? They're memories. It's really what it is. You know, what's that expression that they say when you're editing your writing, you know, killing your darlings? Yep. You know, it's the same thing. You're killing your darlings. You, I used to, back when I was young and living off of not much money, a group of girlfriends and I, we would do a clothes swap. So we would bring all our clothes that we didn't want. We'd have a brunch, we'd drink cheap champagne, and we'd trade clothes with each other. And and most of it ended up going to the women's shelter, but it was such a fun morning. But we had, we had a couple rules. You couldn't disparage your body. You couldn't say negative things about your body. People were very supportive. But the other rule was if you had something that the article of clothing that a friend took, but when you were wearing that article of clothing, you had, let's say, gotten lucky in it. <laughs> <laughs> you had to tell the person and then everyone would go like, oh, what? who was that? Tell us that story. So it was all sort of recounting. <laughs> and I, the bit that really got to me was this idea of being frightened of this person that you might become. And I, I think a lot of people do have that fear of the person they're going to become. And as I read it, I sort of almost wanted her to imagine that she was actually going to meet this person and actually speak to them and actually say, for example, what's your life like, rather than actually assuming that they're going to be lonely. So that actually almost interview, imagine what it would be like to actually be with that person. And it could be actually different from what you 
imagine if you had a conversation in your head with them? Well, and also, don't you think that's such an interesting thing? Because I deal so much of my clients, I think a lot of people keeping a lot of stuff is staving off loneliness. You know, that they literally build a wall around themselves so they don't feel lonely. They shop when they feel lonely. And it's sort of how I feel about happiness and unhappiness. Like, sometimes we're going to feel lonely. Like, what's so bad about having that feeling? Because I would imagine for someone like a Liz Fair that when she feels lonely, maybe that's when she gets creatively inspired. Like, maybe if you sit with the loneliness for a little bit, then you're like, Oh, I don't like this. I'm going to reach out to an old friend or I'm going to take a walk. You know, we're trying, we're trying so hard to stay away from the bad feelings. And maybe sometimes we just need to be with them for a little bit. Because they might be trying to tell us something. They might be saying there's something about your life that isn't working at the moment. This rushing around, keeping yourself busy with stuff. Mm-hmm is actually stopping you seeing the really important things. Stuff could be stopping us from seeing the really important things. Yeah, I, I think I think we use stuff as a distraction. I think we use mm-hmm. stuff as a distraction. We don't want it in the same way that people use alcohol, in the same way that people use weed, and they use food. You know, we use it as a distraction. And so I'm asking people to just create an awareness. Like, Are you shopping late at night on Amazon because you really need that stuff or because you just don't want to crawl into a bed by yourself or you don't like the partner that you're with or you don't like your job you're going to get up for in the morning? What's the avoidance that you're doing by that activity? And let's turn it around to what would you really like to do rather than shopping on Amazon? Mm -hmm. What would be a great way of spending this evening? You know, what would be the thing that you would really like to do? And, you know, how are you going to do it? Because, you know, it could be you want to go out, you want to meet somebody, or you want to do some interesting activity, you want to start a an evening class or something. I don't know, but let's find out what you want to do. You know, it's funny, I sort of, as an entrepreneur, I'm always working, right? I always have to work, I always have work to do. And I'm, I'm after dinner, kind of at the end of the night, like answering emails and taking care of that. And my partner is so good about saying like, put down the computer and let's take the dog for a walk. And I'm like, Mm. Oh no, I've got um, overburdened. But when I, it's when we have our nicest talks and we kind of recount the day and wind down a little bit. And I realize like, Oh, put the stuff mine is, you know, business stuff, put the stuff down and go participate in your partnership. And it's really Mm. such a lovely, like I show up for him and he shows up for me. And guess what? Those emails will be there when I get back or in the morning. Mm. So I have a little bit of a suspicion that I know some of the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You've been a witness on The Meaningful Life, and I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Because I think as well as having your business, you have a a charity that you're very interested in. I shouldn't guess. Tell me what (laughs) makes your life meaningful. I think my my life is made meaningful by my work. I love my work. I love my clients. I love making a difference in people's lives. I love seeing them embrace and change. My life is made meaningful by my partner, my friends, my family, my relationships in my life make my life very meaningful. And then my life is made meaningful by my charity. I 
run a nonprofit called One Kid, One World with a childhood friend, and we rebuild schools in developing nations. So we work primarily in Kenya and Central America. We identify schools that the community has built and are struggling to stay open, and we build classrooms, we put solar power in, we buy books, we pay teachers' salaries. We don't affect curriculum whatsoever. It's not our place to say, but we give them the resources. We also pay a lot of student tuition for girl students, and we have a big program where we provide feminine hygiene products to girls to stay in school because for a lot of young women in developing nations, not having access to feminine hygiene keeps them out of school. How many hours are there in your life? I have a feeling that whereas <laughs> most of us have 24, somehow you have 28. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I have good support. I have a great team. I have a fantastic assistant. You know, I really, I've got eight people who work for me who are fantastic. So I have a little organization. But yeah, I could do with one more weekend day. Somebody could get me one of those. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for being my guest. This is where most people say goodbye to us. But if you're a member of our supporters circle, and you can find details about that in a moment, you can find out what Tracy knows to be true deep down. So we'll find out about that in a moment. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.